Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Answers, an outreach of Christian Answers, a nationwide apologetics ministry dedicated to contending for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints, dedicated to giving Christian answers. Glad you've joined us for the program today. I'm Lee Meckley, Director of Radio Outreach for Christian Answers, and I have really been looking forward to this program. Uh, this is a program that um, I hope you will be able to catch all of the, the details that we'll be discussing. Uh, we're going to be talking about Roman Catholicism uh, again, but it's uh, again, this is um, something you've heard me say before, that we are uh, taking an approach that quite often is neglected uh, when this subject is discussed. But, uh, again, if you will uh, simply hear us out and not simply turn this off as just another uh, polemic uh, about uh, Roman Catholicism, I, I think you will find this... Uh, I think you'll find this a very convincing discussion, whether you yourself are Roman Catholic, you have friends in the Roman Catholic Church, or you're simply interested in uh, church history and interested in uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, we are going to be talking today with uh, William Webster about a book that he has written called The Church of Rome at the Bar of History, published by, uh, uh, by a Banner of Truth. Uh, publishers. And William Webster is a businessman uh, living with his wife and children in Battleground, Washington. Uh, he is the author of two other books, The Christian, Following Christ as Lord and Salvation, and The Bible and Roman Catholicism. Uh, William Webster is the founder of Christian Resources Incorporated and himself is a former Roman Catholic. Uh, William, thank you very much for uh, joining us for the program uh, today. Thank you, Lee. It's a real pleasure to be with you. Uh, I wanted to uh, begin the conversation, I guess, by giving you an opportunity to talk about um, uh, your experiences in the Roman Catholic Church and what caused you to uh, come to the convictions that you have now. I was raised uh, Roman Catholic. Uh, I was raised in the South, in Tennessee. I went to parochial schools all through grade school. I was uh, sent away from home when I was 13 to attend a, uh, a high school that was run by a Benedictine monastery in Rhode Island. I had a, a terrible time adjusting to that school, but uh, eventually I did uh, feel at home there. Although by the time I got to the age of, I guess, around 16 or so, I began to really 
uh, have some philosophical difficulties with the whole issue of Christianity. Uh, I began to really question the whole basis upon which Christianity was formulated. And the gist of it was that by the time I was 18, I had, for all practical purposes, become an agnostic. Uh, The experience that I had uh, as a Roman Catholic in the high school was not a particularly good experience. Uh, It it certainly did not uh, engender in me a desire to be a Christian. I uh, left that school and attended Southern Methodist University in Dallas uh, when I went to college. Uh, Throughout my experience there, I uh, was basically asking the same types of questions that I had uh, begun to ask about my sophomore year in high school and found that I could not find satisfactory answers. I, I did not carte blanche except by faith the authority of the church, the authority of scripture, any of the basic reasons that I had been given in the past that I should be a Christian. Uh, I turned my back on all of that and basically wholesale went into the world. And it's very clear that I was not converted. I did not know Christ. I was not a Christian. I simply had a form of religion. I I should say that I had been very devout as a Roman Catholic at one point. Uh, I used to attend Mass on my own. Uh, when I was 12 years old, I would get up early, ride my bike uh, to go to Mass before I went to school. I was an altar boy uh, before the Latin Mass was changed to English. But be that as it may, when I got into my college experience, uh, it led me uh, in, a, in a very frustrating search for what I thought would be truth. Uh, it was from a philosophical standpoint. I could not find answers. It was after my college experience, I was uh, basically had the ambition of being a songwriter, and I was involved in a, a small music group, that I began to really seek the Lord. Now, this came about as uh, out of a very strange experience, because I came face-to-face with the occult, and having rejected any uh, idea that there is a spiritual dimension to life, I was pretty basically, pretty much a materialist. I, uh, in, in coming face-to-face with this, this uh, reality, because it is very real, I had no categories for this. I did not know what to do with this. It was obviously spiritual in nature. And I concluded that if there is literally a spiritual dimension to reality, there must be a God. So I began to seek the Lord. Uh, as best I knew how, and I began to get back into the scriptures. Uh, A a pastor in Washington State gave me some tapes by Walter Martin dealing with the occult, and it was through his tapes and through my own exposure to the Word of God that I was converted and was brought to Christ. I was truly converted. My life was fundamentally, radically changed because I came face-to-face with the reality of Jesus Christ and realized that he is not just a a person of theology, uh, a myth. He's a living person. He's the living God. And I committed my life to him, and the Lord very graciously uh, changed my life and saved me and converted me. That led then to a very different ambition in my life, Uh, I was at the time living in Washington State, had been married about a year. We moved back to Tennessee. At that point, I got a job, 
and got very involved in a church. Now, this was an evangelical church. I did not go back into Roman Catholicism. I had had some very bad experiences with Roman Catholicism, and being converted basically in an evangelical setting, I went into Protestantism. But I did not really have a fundamental understanding at that point of what Roman Catholicism really stood for. It was some years later, after I had been involved in ministry and in sharing the gospel with individuals and in having dialogue with different Roman Catholics that I began to go back into my roots and began to really seek out what the Roman Catholic Church really stood for because I had Roman Catholics telling me uh, that they believed that the Roman Catholic Church had fundamentally changed, that it was no longer what it used to be, that its doctrines had changed. So I began to, to go on a personal search to try to understand what it is the Roman Catholic Church officially stands for, what does it officially teach. And having been saturated with Scripture, I began to compare those teachings with the Word of God, and this led me to write a book after a great deal of study, with uh, the first one I did about uh, five, six years ago, the Banner of Truth uh, published called Salvation, the Bible, and Roman Catholicism. And that book deals primarily with the salvation teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. And what I, my heart in that was to, after having studied the, the salvation teachings of Rome, was the realization that I did not believe that the gospel that the Roman Catholic Church stood for could be validated by the Word of God. I believe that these teachings were fundamentally contradictory to what the Scriptures actually teach about the Gospel and the work of Jesus Christ. Having written that book out of a desire to give truth to Roman Catholics, to help them understand what the official teaching of their own church is, because I, found, I have found that many Roman Catholics really do not understand the, the teachings of their own church, to help them understand what those teachings are officially, because I have documented those teachings from the official uh, documents of the Church, to help them understand not only those teachings, but also how they compare to the Word of God. Subsequent to that, a friend of mine gave me the book by uh, Carl Keating, called Fundamentalism and Catholicism, or Catholicism and Fundamentalism, I guess is the actual title. And I was very intrigued with Keating's work because Keating uh, basically came at Catholicism and criticism of fundamentalism from an historical standpoint. And I was not prepared, I was not very well prepared for that argument because I had very little training in church history. And it was uh, enlightening to read the book because I found myself challenged page after page with the teaching of early church fathers and with the claim that the Roman Catholic Church could claim a 2,000-year consensus for its teachings and that the Reformation and evangelical Protestantism stood as an aberration to the historical consensus of the one true church supposedly that was established by Jesus Christ. And there were many arguments formulated by Keating which are, are not new. They are very common arguments. But it, uh, it caused me to think, it caused me to take up a challenge, which was to begin to go back into church history to, to really investigate what Keating was saying. Because I realized that if I'm going to be able to adequately and intelligently dialogue with a person like Carl Keating, number one, I'm going to have to know history. 
And number two, in order to reach a literate Catholic, if in fact I am wrong, uh, and right in what I believe and Keating is wrong in what he is stating, I'm going to have to be able to refute uh, these arguments from history because a Roman Catholic has the basic presupposition that the church is infallible and their implicit faith is in a church which cannot err. So any argument that you elicit from the fundamental basis of Scripture with a literate Roman Catholic will simply be met with the objection, well, that's your opinion. We are part of an infallible church, and your interpretation simply cannot uh, match against the infallible interpretation of a church. And besides that, the church has shown it's consistent in its interpretation throughout the history of the church. So it's led me on about a six- or seven-year venture into church history to try to meet the challenge of Carl Keating and other men like Scott Hahn and Jerry Matitix. And the result of that study is the book, The Church of Rome at the Bar of History. You're listening to Christian Answers. I'm Lee Meckley, and uh, we're speaking with William Webster, who is the author of the book The Church of Rome at the Bar of History, published by uh, uh, Banner of Truth. And uh, William, we were talking about, uh, you were talking about your uh, your experiences as uh, growing up uh, Roman Catholic, and then uh, your conversion later on, uh, and at which point you began to. Uh, or at which point you became involved in uh, the evangelical world, so to speak, and then your basic, uh, basically your uh, your writings about uh, Catholicism and the beliefs of Catholicism, and of course what you just got through talking about uh, your experiences after reading uh, authors like Carl Keating, who were uh, spending a tremendous amount of uh, of energy. Uh, uh, Vindicating the the Roman position uh, on the basis of of church history, what the what the church fathers had to say, and uh, before we get into discussing um, uh, what your book has to say, the, the the fruit of these experiences that you've had, uh, I wanted to say something that I I thought that's that's rather uh, sad about uh, the. Uh, the contemporary evangelical scene, and this was what I was alluding to earlier, is that so many times you hear uh, people dealing with Roman Catholicism, whether pro or con, uh, from an evangelical perspective, and they are ignoring, uh, or at least it would seem that they are conceding the Roman Catholic position that church history and the church fathers have always held to these viewpoints, and that the, the Protestant viewpoint is a novelty, uh, and the response is quite often, uh, well, okay, that's, that, that may be true, but we have to go with what the scriptures say. And of course that's accurate, but historically that's not, that's not been the way that this issue's been dealt with. Um, going back to the Protestant Reformation, the appeal was not just to scripture. Uh, the, the appeal was to to church history and to the church fathers uh, that the position that the Reformation was setting forth was something that was not invented at the time of the Reformation, but that was, uh, for want of a better way of putting it, uh, recovered, that it was um, that the it was something that could be supported by appealing to the church fathers. Is that not the case? 
It is the case in, in many aspects of what the Reformation deals with. The, if you read through the Institutes of John Calvin, you will find all throughout that work many allusions to a vast array of different uh, church fathers and church councils. And he garrisons those, uh, those authorities as arguments against the basic Roman Catholic medieval uh, scholastic Catholicism of his day uh, to basically demonstrate the fact that the Church of Rome, rather than being a consistent witness to the history of the teaching of the early church, was, it, was itself, in fact, a departure in much of the, uh, the broader teachings that uh, the Reformation was dealing with. Uh, it's, a, it's a departure from the teaching of the early church. It is not consistent with it at all. Uh, such teachings, for example, as Sola Scriptura. Uh, this, if you go back and read the church fathers, which I have done, you will find a consistent witness to the truth of Sola Scriptura as it was formulated by the Reformers, which is that the Word of God, the written scriptures, are the final and ultimate authority for all matters that relate to faith and doctrine, that we are never to teach any dogma, any doctrine that cannot be validated by the Word of God. And that is a fundamental principle of the Reformation, which could be validated by the writings of the Church Fathers and which is repudiated by the Roman Catholic Church, but in so doing, it repudiates, first of all, Scripture, because I believe Scripture very clearly teaches Sola Scriptura, and then secondly, it, it repudiates Church history, because I think we can prove very clearly that the Church Fathers and the Church as a whole operated on the basis of Sola Scriptura for centuries. Okay, uh, we've got about six minutes left in this segment, and I want to go ahead and get uh, right into your book so we don't run out of time. Um, you mentioned uh, the authority of Scripture, that the uh, Scripture teaches sola scriptura, and that historically the Church has taught uh, sola scriptura. So that is how your book begins. You have uh, the first two chapters of your book, uh, chapter one, uh, called The Authority of Scripture, where we look at the scriptural references themselves to see what Scripture has to say about that. And then we go to uh, the second chapter, which is Scripture and Tradition. Now, uh, Starting at the beginning of your book, uh, let's look at Scripture and see what it has to say about this about this topic of sola scripture. I've heard so many people that are leaning in a Catholic uh, direction say, "Well, I'm uh, I'm not convinced that the Scripture itself teaches sola scripture, so therefore we should not uh, be teaching that as dogmatically as a doctrine." Is that the case, or does does Scripture support uh, the idea that that the Word of God in the written form of the scriptures is our sole authority. Well, I believe the scriptures teach that they alone are our sole, sole authority. Uh, you know, you find, as you look at different controversies in the church, for example, the, the whole controversy of the Arian heresy and the Trinitarian nature of God and the deity of Jesus Christ, uh, the word Trinity is never used in scripture. But the word Trinity is a, is a term that is used to sum up the overall teaching of the nature of God that is embodied in Scripture. The term sola scriptura will not be found in Scripture. That obviously is a Latin term. 
but even as a Greek term, you're not going to find that particular phrase. Uh, what you will find is the declaration that the Word of God is adequate for all that we need for faith and morals. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 are clearly the, the, the basic scripture that is used as the fundamental uh, authority for our teaching that scripture alone is our final authority. It says all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now it says the, the, uh, all scripture is inspired by God. That is fundamental because what it teaches us is that scripture is inspired. Scripture is inherently authoritative because it is inspired. Now if you go through the Word of God and you look at all the descriptions that you find with respect to scripture, I think that that is great proof in and of itself that the scriptures are sufficient, that the scriptures are authoritative. For example, if you, I'll just read off some descriptions in the Word of God about itself. It says that the Word of God is pure, it is perfect, it is eternal, it is sure, it is truth, it is forever settled in heaven, it sanctifies, it causes spiritual growth, it is God-breathed, it is authoritative, it gives wisdom unto salvation, it makes wise the simple, it is living and active, it is a guide, a fire, a hammer, a seed, it is the sword of the Spirit, it gives knowledge of God, it's a lamp to our feet, it's a light to our path, it produces reverence for God, it heals, it makes free, it illuminates, it produces faith, it regenerates, it converts the soul, it brings conviction of sin, it restrains from sin, it is spiritual food, it is infallible, inerrant, irrevocable, it searches the heart and mind, it produces life, it defeats Satan, it, produces, it proves truth, it refutes error, it is holy, it equips for every good work, and it is the final judge of all tradition. Now that sounds pretty sufficient to me. And the question that I have is, number one, I know Scripture is inspired, because Scripture says it is. Number two, I am never told that tradition is inspired. And secondly, where am I ever told anything about tradition that would compare to what I have just read about the written Word of God? It is totally absent. In fact, the, the majority of references in the Word of God about tradition are negative. They are warnings against tradition. Now, before we get uh, any further, uh, we probably better uh, define our, our terms uh, uh, very precisely. Uh, by, uh, in, in other words, for example, the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church would both agree that the Word of God is authoritative and is the sole authority for uh, faith and morals. The question is, what what uh, comprises the Word of God? Right. Uh, the Protestant position, of course, is that the Word of God is uh, contained solely within the written scriptures. That is, it is contained solely within the writings of the prophets from the Old Testament and from the uh, uh, from the from Moses. Uh, the teachers of the law and from the New Testament, uh, from the, uh, the the apostles, uh, the teachings that these men uh, inspired, uh, uh, the, uh, 
carried along by the Holy Spirit, as, as the Apostle Peter uh, says, uh, to, uh, to write uh, what God intended to be his word, and the Roman Catholic position uh, being that the, that the word of God is in the scriptures, but it is also, uh, the scriptures are not complete, that there, are, um, there is more of the word of God that came from the apostles uh, that has been passed down orally by tradition. Now, that's not to say that God is still speaking in the sense that he is still giving uh, divine revelation, but what he did say through the apostles uh, is not contained only within the Word of God, but it is also uh, contained in a tradition that is held by the church where this this uh, Word of God was passed down orally uh, from the apostles down through the centuries. The Church of Rome put such a uh, a, a stress on what the apostolic fathers had to say. In fact, uh, they stress it to the point of saying that there is actually an oral tradition uh, that has been passed down uh, from the apostles that is as authoritative as Scripture, yet is not contained within the, the, the Holy Writ. Is, is that correct, uh, William? That is correct, Lee. Uh, it might be helpful if I were to quote from the Council of Trent in Vatican II, to verify what you're saying, because there are some in the Roman Catholic Church who would dispute that and would try to water down what these councils have actually taught, because what they want to say is that tradition actually has more to do with the interpretation of Scripture and that tradition is somehow subordinate uh, to Scripture. But the Roman Catholic Church has officially taught that there are really two vehicles, if you will, of divine revelation. There's only one source of revelation, that being God, but that he has chosen uh, out of his providence to reveal truth through two means. One is the written word of God, and the other is oral tradition. Uh, this is what the Council of Trent says. The Holy Ecumenical and General Council of Trent lawfully assembled in the Holy Ghost that the purity of the gospel may be preserved in the church after the errors have been removed. This gospel of old promised through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, promulgated first with his own mouth, and then commanded it to be preached by his apostles to every creature as the source at once of all saving truth and rules of conduct. It, is also, it also clearly perceives that these truths and rules are contained in the written books and in the unwritten traditions, which received by the apostles from the mouth of Christ himself or from the apostles themselves, the Holy Ghost dictating have come down to us, transmitted, as it were, from hand to hand. And then uh, Vatican II, you can see there that they, they affirm the fact that there, there is both the unwritten uh, oral tradition and the written Word of God. Uh, Vatican II says this, Hence there exists a close connection and communication between sacred tradition and sacred scripture. For both of them, flowing from the same divine wellspring in a certain way merge into a unity and tend toward the same end. For sacred scripture is the word of God inasmuch as it is consigned to writing under the inspiration of the divine spirit. To the successors of the apostles, sacred tradition hands on in its full purity God's word which was entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. Consequently, it is not from sacred scripture alone that the Church draws her certainty about everything which has been revealed. Therefore, both sacred tradition and sacred scripture are to be accepted 
and venerated with the same sense of devotion and reverence. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture form one sacred deposit of the Word of God, which is committed to the Church. Now, before we uh, uh, before we uh, go on with that thought, there is something that I wanted to say, uh, somewhat parenthetically, but I do want to uh, spend some time dealing with it. Uh, that is also brought up in the Council of Trent is the idea of what even what even comprises sacred scripture. Uh, there is a dispute between uh, the Protestants and the Catholics on the matter of what comprises a canon of scripture. And uh, I want to spend some time with this because even this point uh, can can uh, can stand a, a great deal of illumination from church history. Uh, you have mentioned in your book that the Roman Catholic Church in the, at the Council of Trent uh, appeals to the uh, councils of Hippo and Carthage uh, that took place in uh, the North African region, uh, of course, uh, under the uh, leadership of uh, St. Augustine. And uh, Augustine, of course, uh, was a proponent of including uh, the books that are commonly known as the Apocrypha in the canon of Scripture. And they make a big point of, of saying that the canon of Scripture was more or less established at this time and definitely established uh, during the Council of Trent. Uh, could you comment a little bit on, uh, on these books known as the Apocrypha and whether or not there's a, there's a question historically about whether, whether they should be included in the canon of Holy Scripture? Sure. The, uh, the argument is, is often formulated that... Uh, two Protestants by the Roman Catholics, that since supposedly these uh, North African councils officially and authoritatively define the, uh, the extent of the canon for the Church, why is it that we then reject the authority of the Roman Catholic Church? Well, the simple answer to that is that we don't accept the premise upon which that is proposed to us. Uh, the councils of Carthage and Hippo did not establish the canon for the Church. If you go back into the history of the canon, and it is a very complicated history, but nonetheless, what you find in a general sense is this. The Septuagint included the writings of the Apocrypha. And it's the Apocrypha that we're really dealing with here, the, uh, the, those, uh, those books that come out of the intertestamental period and which are disputed between Roman Catholicism and Protestantism. Uh, the the writings of the Apocrypha came to be included as part of the Septuagint. And there was no distinction made between those books in the Old Testament that were considered canonical and those which were considered to be uh, deuterocanonical, if you will, that the, these extra test the, the, the uh, intertestamental books, the Apocrypha, that these were uh, began to be received by Christian communities because they had no way to distinguish uh, between those that were canonical and non-canonical. They began to receive the Apocrypha as part of the canonical scriptures. But number one, this goes against the history of the Jews themselves. The Jews did not accept the Apocrypha as part of the Old Testament canon. The, uh, the New Catholic Encyclopedia makes this statement. For the Old Testament, Protestants follow the Jewish canon. They have only the books that are in the Hebrew Bible. Catholics have, in addition, seven deuterocanonical books of the Old Testament. 
Now, that is an admission by an official organ of the Roman Catholic Church that the Jews, in their official canon, did not accept the Apocrypha, and that the Protestant Bible is consistent with the Jews. Now, that is very important because it is the Jews who were given the scriptures, and the Jews did not receive the Apocrypha as part of canonical scripture. When you look at the the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles, they do not quote from the Apocrypha. They quote from many other books in the Old Testament, but they do not quote from the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha was not uh, authoritative in defining issues of doctrine for the Jews. And when you come up through the history of the church with major church fathers, what you find is that many of them did not accept the authority of the uh, of the apocrypha they relied upon the old canon of the hebrews which consisted we are told of 22 books now they numbered their books differently the uh, all of the old uh, of the uh, minor prophets for example were considered to be just one book so what you have then is the numbering is different but the books basically are the 39 books that we have in the protestant bible uh, Josephus, who was a first-century Jew who witnessed the fall of Rome, is a witness to the fact that the canon of the Jews consisted of what he called 22 Old Testament books. Uh, those church fathers who were familiar with Palestine, such as Origen and Jerome, both rejected the Apocrypha as being part of the canonical scriptures received from the Jews. Melito of Sardis, who was a second century uh, church father, went to Palestine to try to discern what were the canonical scriptures. And uh, we're told in Eusebius, the church historian, that he came back with the exact same number uh, which Origen and Jerome and uh, and Josephus have given us. The number is 22. Uh, You'll find that uh, the church fathers such as uh, Gregory of Nazianzen, Basil the Great, Epiphanius, uh, Hilary of Poitiers, Amphilochius, Athanasius, Cyril of Jerusalem. All of these church fathers reject the, uh, the Apocrypha as being part of the uh, canon of Scripture. Uh, Athanasius makes a list for us. He, he documents this for us in one of his festal letters. And he gives us a list of the 22 authorized uh, Old Testament books. And then he makes this statement, These are the fountains of salvation, that they who thirst may be satisfied with the living words they contain. And these alone is proclaimed the doctrine of godliness. So he, he is saying that there is one basic fundamental canon of the Old Testament, which does not include the Apocrypha. Now, he did say that certain of these Apocryphal books would be useful for edification, if we're reading in the church, they, they did not deny that this would be so, and they did use those books in that way. Now, this is, this, uh, is an interesting point that you make in your book, that perhaps a lot of the tension that seems to be uh, there between Augustine and Jerome uh, comes from a possible uh, misunderstanding of what Augustine meant when he said canon, uh, that there might be a distinction between books that he considered 
within the realm of being uh, in the canon, but some books being authoritative for teaching doctrine and other books being more um, inspirational and uh, uh, more for, uh, like you said, reading in the church services and, and so forth. Let me read, if I could, a quote from Cardinal Cajetan in the uh, 16th century. Because Cajetan is a, a witness to how we should interpret uh, our understanding of Augustine and the North African Council, because I really do believe that there was a, a broad understanding of the word canon, as well as a very narrow understanding of the word canon, because it's clear from men like Rufinus, for example. Rufinus uh, wrote from Rome. He wrote after the councils of Carthage and Hippo, and he defines for us the extent of the canon, and he divides the... Uh, the books into two main categories. One is authoritative canonical books, which exclude the Apocrypha, and he explicitly states that. And then he says there are ecclesiastical books, which are received into the church, but are not authoritative for defining doctrine. And that's how Jerome basically viewed the, the issue with the Apocrypha. He, he went back to the Hebrew scriptures, and he refused to accept the Apocrypha because it was not part of the Hebrew canon. Nonetheless, uh, what we find then is that Augustine is expressing a view, and the North African Church expresses a view that I believe is more encompassing in terms of a broader understanding of the word canon, although I believe they probably had a more narrow view of the real canonical books relative to the Apocrypha. This is what Cajetan, uh, Cardinal Cajetan has to say, and Cajetan, if you, re if you will remember, was the great opponent of Luther. Uh, he was one of the leading scholars of his day. Some believe that if he had not died, he probably would have been the next pope. But this is what he says about the Apocrypha, and this, this comes from his commentaries on all of the historical books of the Old Testament, which he dedicated to the pope of his day. He says, here we close our commentaries on the historical books of the Old Testament. For the rest, that is, Judith, Tobit, and the books of Maccabees are counted by St. Jerome out of the canonical books and are placed amongst the Apocrypha, along with Wisdom and Ecclesiasticus, as is plain from the Prologus Galatiatus. Nor be thou disturbed like a raw scholar, if thou shouldst find anywhere, either in the sacred councils or the sacred doctors, these books reckoned as canonical. For the words, as well as of councils as of doctors, are to be reduced to the correction of Jerome. Now, according to his judgment, in the epistle to the bishops of Chromatius and Heliodorus, these books and any other like books in the canon of the Bible are not canonical. That is, not in the nature of a rule for confirming matters of faith. Yet, they may be called canonical, that is, in the nature of a rule for the edification of the faithful, as being received and authorized in the canon for the Bible for that purpose. By the help of this distinction, thou mayest see thy way clearly through that which Augustine says and what is written in the Provincial Council of Carthage. Hmm. So, again, there is less confusion and less um, uh, disagreement in, the, in church history as far as the canon goes than we have been led to believe up until now. It is, uh, it is very clear because uh, if you look at the teaching of the major church historian or church theologians throughout the Middle Ages all the way up to the Reformation, what you find is the opinion that was expressed by Cardinal Cajetan. Gregory the Great 
this is Pope Gregory the Great writing in uh, the, the very uh, end of the uh, 6th century, references the book of 1st Maccabees. And this is what he has to say with reference to Maccabees. He says, with reference to which particular we are not acting irregularly, if from the books, though not canonical, yet brought out for the edification of the church, we bring forward testimony. Thus Eleazar in the battle smote and brought down an elephant, but fell under the very beast that he killed. That's First Maccabees 646. He's basically saying that this is a work that is useful for edification, but it is not canonical. That is his opinion. That is his, uh, and it obviously would have been the opinion of the church of his day. Uh, the New Catholic Encyclopedia has affirmed the fact that the councils of Carthage and Hippo did not authoritatively define the extent of the canon in their day. Uh, they make the statement that it was not until the Council of Trent that this matter was officially settled by the Roman Catholic Church. This is what they say. The Council of Trent definitively settled the matter of the Old Testament canon. That this had not been done previously is apparent from the uncertainty that persisted up to the time of Trent. And they say this about this uncertainty. St. Jerome distinguished between canonical books and ecclesiastical books. The latter, he judged, were circulated by the church as good spiritual reading, but were not recognized as authoritative scripture. The situation remained unclear in the ensuing centuries. For example, John of Damascus, Gregory the Great, Wallifred, Nicholas of Lyra, and Testado continued to doubt the canonicity of the deuterocanonical books. According to Catholic doctrine, the proximate criterion of the biblical canon is the infallible decision of the church. This decision was not given until rather late in the history of the church at the Council of Trent. Okay, uh, you're listening to Christian Answers. I'm Lee Meckley. We're speaking with William Webster about his book, uh, The Church of Rome at the Bar of History, uh, published by Banner of Truth. And we only have about five minutes left in this segment. And I want to go ahead and, and move on to your second uh, chapter uh, called Scripture and Tradition. And at this point, uh, obviously, the Catholics will say that Scripture has a great deal to say about the importance of tradition, and Protestants would agree that uh, Scripture has a great deal to say about uh, tradition. So at, at, before we get into the actual discussion of Romanism and Protestantism, uh, let's, um, for the next five minutes, and then uh, after the uh, break we'll continue the discussion, talk about what the Bible has to say about tradition. What, what does Scripture teach about the kind of tradition that we have been talking about up until this point? Okay, Scripture does teach a certain aspect of tradition. Uh, for example, uh, there is a positive affirmation of tradition given in 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, verse 15. Uh, everyone is familiar, well, most likely everyone is familiar with that passage of Scripture, certainly Roman Catholics are, where uh, Paul exhorts the Thessalonians that they are to obey his injunctions, the tradition which he has given them either by word of mouth or orally, which he has handed on to them. Now, it's interesting that the same word, the word tradition, is paradosis. Uh, the word tradition is also, again, used by Paul in the third chapter of Second Thessalonians, where he refers to a teaching which he had given the church of, of, of Thessalonica, that those who refuse to uh, engage in work should not eat. And he's talking about uh, individuals who have forsaken their 
their occupations to uh, go out and somehow wait for the uh, supposed second coming of Christ or what they believe would be the second coming of Christ. Uh, that's one issue that he deals with there, but he also deals with those who who would refuse to work and would would somehow want to live off of the uh, the goodwill of the church. What he's saying there is this is tradition, and all the word tradition means is teaching. It means the handing on, either in written form or orally, doctrine. And obviously Paul is an apostle, and he has handed on to the church revelation from God. And he has done that orally, and he has done that in writing. Now the issue is, when Paul uses the term tradition, does he mean by that word the same thing that the Roman Catholic Church means? And you have two issues to deal with here. You have to deal with the issue of the concept of tradition historically, in terms of what that concept meant to the early church and what it means in Scripture. And then you have to deal with the content, the doctrinal content of that tradition, and whether or not that content, in terms of how the Roman Catholic Church today defines that content, would be equivalent to what Paul means when he says that they are to obey, to obey the tradition which he has given to the Church of Thessalonica. Okay, so uh, at this point we are we're looking at what Scripture has to say about uh, tradition, and we're looking at whether the the when Scripture speaks of tradition, that we are we're we're seeing the same thing that uh, Roman Catholicism is is talking about. Now you mentioned uh, uh, Paul uh, when he talks about tradition and speaking of it in favorable terms. Uh, what what else does Scripture have to say about tradition uh, along these lines? Okay, the the one passage that I cited is really the only positive passage of Scripture that you will find in all of the Word of God that has to do with tradition. The Lord Jesus Christ is scathing with respect to tradition. And what he basically says, if you go through Mark 7 and Matthew 15, when he takes issue with the uh, Pharisees who had taken issue with him because he refused to bow to their tradition, what he basically said was, you have elevated your tradition, which you have handed down through the centuries, to a position of authority equal to the Word of God. And you, in your tradition, are condemned because your tradition has invalidated Scripture. And what he is basically saying is there is a test which you have to apply to any tradition. He is not necessarily voicing a negative opinion about all tradition. What he is saying is that if any tradition be it a practice or a doctrine, in any way does not conform to the Word of God, the written scriptures, that tradition is to be rejected. Because if you elevate that teaching, which would be contradictory to the Word of God, which in any way invalidates the Word of God, you have then elevated the authority of man over the authority of God. And this is basically what what Paul says in Colossians, where he says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And honor not his father or his mother, he shall be free. Uh, you have made the commandment of God of none effect by your tradition, is what Jesus says. Uh, so Paul is saying, and Jesus is saying, You beware of tradition, because 
church history has taught us, uh, the Jews taught us, that it is a very easy thing for the teachings of men to creep into the life of the church and displace the ultimate authority of Scripture. Jesus makes it very clear that the ultimate standard by which any teaching is to be judged is the authority of Scripture. When Paul came preaching the gospel to the Bereans, they took his message, his oral message, as an apostle, and they compared it to Scripture. And once again, William, I want to say uh, thank you for joining us on the program. Thank you, Lee. And I want to talk a little bit more about what you said was the, the test to determine whether or not uh, someone is rightly or wrongly holding the Scripture and some more uh, instances of, of what Scripture has to say about appealing to either tradition or Scripture. Okay, Jesus, if you, uh, if you recall, he had the, the conflict with the Pharisees. Jesus always, if you go through his ministry and you look at how he deals with people, he is constantly preaching the Word of God. And he is always correcting people with the Word of God. In Matthew 22, he was confronted with the Sadducees who had a theological debate with him over the issue of the resurrection. And they did not believe in the resurrection. And he says something very significant to them. He says, you are greatly mistaken, because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. And then he quotes from the Old Testament, and he says, God is the God of the, of the living. I, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Moses. And he said, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And what he's doing there is he is quoting Scripture. He's using the present tense, I am, to demonstrate to them that there is a resurrection, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still living. But significantly, what he says to them is, you are greatly mistaken, because you don't know the Scriptures. And he uses the Scriptures to correct them and with the desire to bring them back to a fundamental submission to the authority of the Word of God. And he did that all through his ministry. Uh, in Matthew 15, the Pharisees and the scribes, they come to him, and they, they criticize Jesus. They say, why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Now, this is, this is just like what the church fathers are in Roman Catholicism. This is what the tradition of the elders would be to the Pharisees and the scribes of that day. These are the authorities of the past who have handed down authoritative teaching. And what they're saying is that you are in contradiction to what these authorities have taught. And Jesus turns the guns on them, and he says, why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And he begins to go through a litany of things which they have done, which are in direct violation to the word of God. And he says, you hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And so what he basically is saying is you have invalidated the word of God by your tradition. So implicit in what he's saying is that the ultimate standard to determine if a doctrine is correct or not is whether it conforms to the word of God. If it does not conform to the Word of God, it is to be rejected. Now, something that is uh, that I wanted to bring up at this point as as um, an observation that I've made, and an observation that, um, uh, if I'm understanding you correctly, something that you're bringing out in your book, that there, you know, there's a, a discussion of tradition in the New Testament that has been. Uh, given by the apostles that you mentioned in, in the quote from Paul. But 
when we look back to the Old Testament, um, or from the New Testament, we look back to the Old Testament, there doesn't seem to be any kind of tradition that's been passed on from that point that's ever spoken of in a positive sense. In other words, when Christ is uh, confronted by uh, Satan in the wilderness, all of his appeals are to Scripture. And uh, there are several other examples that we could cite where uh, when we look from the New Testament uh, times, uh, the people were supposed to be holding to Scripture and Scripture alone. There was no tradition that I'm aware of that had been passed down from early Judaism that was supposed to be held along with the Scriptures. The only positive references to tradition in the Scripture is um, uh, tradition and writings of the apostles. Is, is that correct? That, I believe, is correct. Uh, I don't see anything from the lips of Jesus Christ that is a positive affirmation of tradition. I see nothing but criticism. Uh, the, the entire Sermon on the Mount, in one sense, is a criticism of the tradition of the Pharisees, where he goes through and he says, you have heard it stated from the ancients, but I say to you, and he corrects their misinterpretations of Scripture or uh, practices which they have uh, brought into the uh, church which, uh, the church of their day, which uh, were contrary to the Word of God. I really want to, to look at this, uh, to start out by looking at what Rome has to say about itself and the claims that it makes as far as um, being grounded uh, historically and uh, doctrinally in the, the teaching of the apostles, um, not only in, in written form, but in, in oral form. Well, basically what they're saying is that uh, all of Revelation was not consigned to writing, and that there is a body of doctrine that uh, has been handed down from Christ and the apostles to the church, which is independent of Scripture, but is still Revelation. And they will claim, uh, for example, the teachings of Mary, uh, some of the teachings of the papacy, even though they will uh, allude to Scriptures for these, uh, oftentimes uh, these are going to be teachings like, for example, purgatory, uh, which are claimed from tradition. Now, it, it's interesting because... Uh, it's very difficult to nail down uh, the Roman Catholic Church to give us a real definitive answer on the actual content of the tradition. Uh, what they tend to say is there is such a tradition. Uh, these truths have been handed down from the very beginning. Uh, sometimes they are not necessarily very apparent initially. They are implicitly held, and then they become more explicit as time goes on. Uh, but even though they are not found in Scripture, uh, they are still legitimately uh, to be regarded as revelation and are uh, necessary to be believed often, according to Rome, for salvation. Now, the Roman Church at this point appeals to the uh, Church Fathers and says that historically the Church has always held this view of... of um, of, of tradition and this view of the of the duality of scripture and tradition and the this chapter that I'm looking at uh, talks about uh, the view of the church fathers on the subject of tradition uh, versus sola scriptura which again is a reformation term but regardless of that the idea is is that concept to be found in the teaching of the, the fathers of the church. And I want to look at that for, uh, for the next um, 
uh, the next eight minutes or so, I want to look at the church fathers and what their view of tradition uh, alongside of Scripture was. Okay, the the definition of tradition, according to the Roman Catholic Church, is that it is an oral handing down of a body of doctrine, which remained oral in nature until it be until it may have been uh, written down at some later time by by the church fathers. Fact of the matter is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there is oral preaching and teaching. Anyone who stands up in a pulpit or teaches a Sunday school class is teaching oral truth. You are transmitting truth in an oral fashion. Paul did that. Uh, All of the apostles did that. The uh, bishops of the early church all did that. They all taught orally. And what they taught was called tradition. But I want to come back again to what the early church means by tradition, because they had three fundamental meetings which developed uh, to define that term. First of all, the word tradition had to do with what they call apostolic tradition or the rule of faith. Those were the major doctrines of the church which defined Christianity. Then you had ecclesiastical practices, which had been uh, in the church as practices for, for many, many years. Those were also called tradition and uh, were considered uh, by some church fathers to have been handed down orally by the apostles. And then you have uh, later on in the history of the church a, uh, a concept formulated, well, it's formulated by Irenaeus in a uh, not quite explicit way as it was later formulated by Vincent of Larens in the 5th century, what is called the unanimous consent of the fathers, and that is an interpretive function of the Word of God. It's an authoritative interpretation of the meaning of Scripture and what he calls universality, antiquity, and consent of the overall view of the church fathers throughout the ages. That is a uh, basically a standard of interpretation, which is the criterion for determining what is truly Catholic and Orthodox. But that is a standard which is, is, is under the authority of Scripture. And what you come back to is when you look at how the early church viewed apostolic tradition, the question is, was this an oral tradition? And the answer is no. Irenaeus answers this question for us. Because Irenaeus says this, We have learned from none others the plan of our salvation than from those through whom the gospel has come down to us, which they did at one time proclaim in public and at a later time by the will of God handed down to us in the scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our faith. Now, how did Irenaeus know what Paul and the other apostles taught orally? It had been handed down to him in the scriptures And according to what Irenaeus says, those scriptures then became the ground and pillar of his faith. The ground and pillar of the church is the word of God, the inscripturated word of God. So even though he will affirm the fact that there was oral teaching, what he says is that we know the content of that oral teaching because we have the scriptures. He goes on to say, we also can tell you the the doctrinal content of apostolic tradition. And he defines it for us in explicit terms. Tertullian also defines the content doctrinally of what the apostolic uh, tradition consisted of. 
And basically what it consisted of was the, the fundamental tenets of the creed. Who is God? Who is Jesus Christ? The, the judgment to come, all of those fundamental doctrines that are formulated by the creed is a summing up of the truth of Scripture. There is not a single doctrine which is given in that creed that, that cannot be rooted and found in the written word of God. And that's how they defined apostolic tradition. Now, if you look at the practice of the early church and, their, and the view of the church fathers with respect to Scripture, let me quote to you from Cyril of Jerusalem. Cyril of Jerusalem is writing in the mid-fourth century. He is the bishop of Jerusalem, one of the preeminent sees of the church of that day. This is what he says with respect to the authority of Scripture. Concerning the divine and sacred mysteries of the faith, we ought not to deliver even the most casual remark without the Holy Scriptures, nor be drawn aside by mere probabilities and the artifices of argument. Do not then believe me, because I tell thee of these things, unless thou receive from the Holy Scriptures the proof of what is set forth. For this salvation, which is your faith, is not by ingenious reasonings, but by proof from the Holy Scriptures. For the articles of the faith were not composed at the good pleasure of men, but the most important points chosen from all Scriptures make up the one teaching of the faith. Now heed not any ingenious views of mine, else thou mayest be misled. But unless thou receive the witness of the prophets concerning each matter, believe not what is spoken, Unless thou learn from Holy Scripture, receive not the witness of man. You could not find a clearer formulation of the doctrine of sola scriptura than that statement from this church father. And what's interesting about that statement is, as you point out in your book, that particular quote is from writings that he was using to catechize new converts. That is correct. That, that is what's so significant about it, because... He is, he is passing on to them, and, and interestingly enough, he quotes 2 Thessalonians 2.15 to confirm everything that he's teaching here. In other words, the, the teaching of Paul about passing on tradition. This is what he's doing with these catechumens. And what he is telling them is that my authority as a bishop is contingent upon the authority of the Word of God and my conformity and my teaching to the Word of God. And he's saying, you disregard me and my authority if I contradict the Word of God. The whole issue of oral tradition, you will not find one reference in the entire catechetical lectures. That's where this comes from. It's a very large volume where he deals with the entirety of everything that is necessary for these catechumens to believe. There is not one single reference to oral tradition. You will also not find one single reference to the Assumption of Mary, to the Immaculate Conception of Mary, or to the Papacy. Hmm. Now, if you go back for a minute and think about oral tradition, Irenaeus had to deal with oral tradition historically. He had to deal with that with the Gnostics. Oral tradition is a, separate, is a concept meaning revelation from God did not begin with the early church. It began with the Gnostics in a heretical system. It's the Gnostics who taught that they had received a revelation independent of Scripture that was oral in nature. And that is what Irenaeus had to fight against. Uh, the name of his work was Against Heresies, was it not? Against Heresies, that's correct. 
And that's, he repudiates the whole notion that there could be truth handed down, independent of Scripture, that could not be verified by Scripture, that came from the apostles. Well, now, this is, this is rather shocking. Um, you are saying now at this point that there actually, there actually was a heresy uh, way in the early, back in the er- time of the early church, uh, where a group, uh, specifically the Gnostics, are teaching uh, that not only is there the Scripture, but there is also an oral law. Uh, uh, or an oral tradition that came down directly from the apostles, bypassing the written word, and uh, that they alone, I guess, were recipients. Uh, William, what, uh, what else? What other fathers can we uh, can we cite to to see what they have to say about this particular subject? Well, there are a vast uh, number of different fathers that you can go to because in their writings it is uh, very clear that their constant appeal is to Scripture to document and to validate any teaching which they are setting forth. Uh, Tertullian, for example, says, the Scriptures indeed furnish us with our rule of faith. It's the Scriptures. Uh, In giving us the content, the doctrinal content of the rule of faith, he goes through the specific doctrines that that consists of, and every single one of them is, is validated by the Word, the written Word of God, by the Scriptures. Uh, and you will find in his uh, writings and, and other places, for example, he talks about having to prove your doctrine uh, in dealing in his work against proxies. Uh, he says this, you will then make good your proof of his power and his will to do even this when you shall have proved to us that he actually did it. It will be your duty, however, to adduce your proofs out of the scriptures as plainly as we do when we prove that he made his word a son to himself. You must bring forth the proof which I require of you, one like my own. That is, you must prove to me that the Scriptures show the Son and the Father to be the same, just as on our side the Son and the Father are demonstrated to be distinct. For as on my part I produce the words of God himself, so you, in like manner, ought to adduce in opposition to me some text. And that is, uh, in essence, basically the same thing which Cyril of Jerusalem taught uh, some 200 years later, after uh, Tertullian. Cyprian does exactly the same thing. Uh, interestingly enough, Cyprian was embroiled in a major conflict with the uh, Bishop of Rome, Stephen by name, uh, over the issue of rebaptizing heretics. And he takes issue with the Bishop of Rome, and the principle upon which he operates is that you are not to rely upon custom or tradition unless you can validate that custom or that practice or that teaching from the written scriptures. And this is what he says about tradition. Whence is that tradition? Whoever may be presenting a tradition to you, for example, he says, whence is that tradition? Whether does it descend from the authority of the Lord and the gospel, or does it come from the injunctions of the epistles of the apostles? And all through his this particular treatise in which he's dealing with this issue, he is constantly saying you have to come back to the, uh, the head and the original of divine tradition, which he means the Word of God. When he talks about tradition, he always equates it with the written scriptures. Uh, and he, he constantly calls men back. He calls Stephen, the Bishop of Rome, back to the written Word of God. 
Uh, Clement of Alexandria says, For we may not give our adhesion to men on a bare statement by them who might equally state, that the, state the opposite of what we are saying. But if it is not enough merely to state the opinion, but if what is stated must be confirmed, we do not wait for the testimony of men, but we establish the matter that is in question by the voice of the Lord, which is the surest of all demonstrations, or rather is the only demonstration in which knowledge those who have merely tasted the Scriptures are believers. We give a complete exhibition of the Scriptures from the Scriptures themselves, from faith, persuade by demonstration. So he says, what we teach has to be confirmed, and how is it confirmed? He says, the basis upon which any doctrine is confirmed is the Word of God. It's the written Scriptures. Uh, Origen says that no one should use for the proof of doctrine books not included among the canonized Scriptures. So he again talks about proofs and the necessity for proofs. Uh, Chrysostom says, these then are the reasons, but it is necessary to establish them all from the Scriptures and to show with exactness that all that has been said on this subject is not an invention of human reasoning, but the very sentence of the scriptures. Athanasius, if you look at the history of his conflict with the Arians and his stand for orthodoxy, he never appealed to oral tradition. He always appealed to the written scriptures. This is what he says. Since then your piety desire to learn from us the faith of the Catholic Church, giving thanks for these things to the Lord, we counseled above all things to remind your piety of the faith confessed by the fathers at Nicaea. For this, this certain set at naught, while plotting against us in many ways, because we would not comply with the Arian heresy, and they have become authors of heresy and schisms in the Catholic Church, for the true and pious faith in the Lord has, been, has become manifest to all, being both known and read from the divine scriptures. He says, but our faith is right and starts from the teaching of the apostles and the tradition of the fathers, being confirmed both by the New Testament and the Old. While the apostolic tradition teaches in the words of blessed Peter, now notice what he says, the apostolic tradition teaches in the words of blessed Peter, and now he quotes scripture, for as much then as Christ suffered for us in the flesh, and in what Paul writes, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity. So what is apostolic tradition, according to Athanasius? It is scripture, what Peter and Paul have written. And you can go on and on with other fathers. Uh, Augustine says, what more shall I teach you than what we read in the apostle? For holy scripture fixes the rule for our doctrine lest we dare be wiser than we ought. Therefore, I should not teach you anything else except to expound to you the words of the teacher. Now, you're listening to Christian Answers, and if you've just joined us, we're talking to William Webster, who is uh, author of the book, The Church of Rome at the Bar of History, and we're talking about what the church fathers had to say about tradition uh, as it relates to Scripture. Now, if you were to get a hold of this book, uh, you would find that a good uh, third of it, almost a half of it, uh, at the end is devoted to uh, appendices, uh, the first one of which is simply a list of quotes from the Fathers on the meaning of tradition and its relationship to Scripture. Uh, there's also several other appendices in the book, uh, Vatican I and Vatican II on papal infallibility, uh, an interesting uh, letter of Gregory the Great, uh, which was uh, uh, one of the early popes, to John of Constantinople, 
which was uh, the, uh, the patriarch of the Eastern Church, objecting to his adoption of the title of universal bishop. Now, here is an interesting letter from a pope uh, basically, uh, basically uh, um, condemning this uh, this bishop for uh, for adopting a title of universal bishop, and interestingly enough, actually um, refers to him as or to anyone who would uh, who would t- uh, take this title for himself as being precursor to the Antichrist. Now, quite often. Uh, that's thrown around uh, nowadays, and and it's often uh, considered to be inflammatory and unnecessary and and unsupportable. But here you have a uh, a pope that is saying this. But uh, speaking of the the subject of we're we're running out of time, and and there's two other chapters that I want to uh, talk about uh, before we run out of time. By the way, uh, uh. We are going to be having a, another interview with William Webster on the last five chapters of this book that deal more with uh, uh, what Scripture has to say about salvation and what, again, the Church Fathers had to say about salvation, and you'll definitely want to be with us uh, for that. Uh, but as we wrap up today's show, I want to talk about uh, Chapter 4 and Chapter 5 of your book, uh, chapter 4 being entitled The Papacy and the Rock of Matthew 16. Uh, tell us about this particular chapter uh, where you uh, look at what the Roman Catholic Church has to say about its leader. Well, the Roman Catholic Church historically has always claimed that its authority is derived from the commission of Christ to Peter. And they interpret the commission to mean that in his words to Peter, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Uh, Prior to that, by the way, uh, Peter obviously had made a confession of faith in Christ as the Son of the living God. And Christ turns to him and gives this blessing to him in terms of this commission. But the uh, Church of Rome has always claimed, uh, historically, uh, that the Roman authority as the church was established by Christ in Peter, that Peter is the rock, and that when he established Peter as the rock, he also established a papal office with successors who would be the bishops of Rome. And it is through the bishops of Rome as successors to Peter who carry on the rock foundation of the church, that the church is built upon the bishops of Rome as successors of Peter. That this is the fundamental basis of the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. And it is the interpretation of this passage which uh, historically has been used as the basis upon which they have made the claims. It is the basis upon which Vatican I, for example, uh, if you take the, uh, the three major passages of Scripture, that being Matthew 16, uh, 18, Luke 22, 32, which is where Christ says, uh, uh, Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And then John 21, 15 to 17, where uh, Peter is commissioned as a shepherd. Those three passages of Scripture are united together to form a triumvirate of passages which form the basis of the authority of the papal office as enunciated by Vatican I. Now, you make the point here uh, about Vatican I that um, you, actually make a, uh, you actually say that there are ten 
points that are made about uh, papal rule, the right of papal rule, and a fa- infallibility. And an intriguing one is the the tenth one. Uh, it says that it is necessary for salvation that everyone, uh, and apparently this is a retroactive statement going back to the, the founding of the church, it is necessary for salvation that everyone who professes to be a Christian must be submitted to the authority of the Roman pontiff in all areas of faith, morals, and discipline. And if anyone disagrees with these teachings of Vatican I, they are anathematized. Again, that's from Vatican I, uh, which met from 1869 to 1870. So here in the 19th century, we have this um, proclamation, among others, uh, being set forth about the right of papal rule and uh, papal infallibility. So Apparently, what uh, what uh, the Roman Church is saying at this point is that it has always been necessary to uh, to believe this and to submit to, uh, to to papal authority in order to be saved. Am I interpreting that correctly? You are interpreting that correctly. In fact, the uh, Vatican I makes this statement. After it makes its teachings about papal infallibility and papal rule, it says, this is the teaching of Catholic truth from which no one can deviate without loss of faith and salvation. Now, most people are not aware of that. I, I, I would grant that probably very few Roman Catholics and practically no evangelicals have ever read Vatican I. But Vatican I is a very hard-hitting, uh, in-your-face uh, council, and they laid it on the line. Uh, they affirmed the Council of Trent, and then they went on to define the issues of papal infallibility and papal jurisdiction in terms of salvation. Uh, these are not just doctrines that they're saying are uh, really necessary for Roman Catholics. They're saying these are necessary for anyone who would embrace Christ and be saved, who would come into a saving relationship with him, because it, it, it impinges upon the whole issue of what saving faith is. And this enters into the doctrinal content of what they consider to be saving faith. Now, there is what we can say is that going back historically, uh, starting, let's say, about the 14th century, you will find affirmations of this teaching from the bishops of Rome. Boniface VIII, uh, in 1302 or 1303, I've forgotten which date it is, but he makes this statement. He says, every human creature, that he says, furthermore, that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. This we declare, say, define, and pronounce to be altogether necessary to salvation. Hmm. So there is some historical legitimacy to what they're saying, but what they say is that this has been true from the very beginning. Right. That's what we take issue with. Okay, well, now this particular chapter you uh, divide into two parts. You deal with their arguments exegetically from Scripture, and then uh, you look at the pattern uh, of, uh, of authority in the Church after uh, the time of the Apostles to see uh, whether the pattern uh, conforms to uh, what we seem to find in Scripture exegetically or whether it conforms to uh, what we find in Vatican I. Now, uh, I want to go ahead and let you uh, talk about, first of all, exegetically, why this interpretation that Rome takes of, of Matthew 16 is, is unlikely. Well, number one, without getting into the worn-out arguments about Petrus and Petra, the differences between the two Greek terms, when you look at what Scripture teaches about the rock, you go back into the Old Testament, and the Old Testament teaches us that the rock is God himself. He is the Lord. All through 
the Old Testament, in the Psalms in particular, you find the designation of the rock as being descriptive of Jehovah. In the, uh, in the book of Daniel, in the prophecy of the end times, where we have this stone which uh, decimates the kingdoms of the world and then fills up the world, that stone is the person of Jesus Christ. When we look at the preaching of Paul and the preaching of Peter, uh, Peter in particular does not point to himself in any way as the rock. He never refers to himself as the rock. Now, some would say, well, that's just humility. But when you talk about preaching and when you talk about ecclesiology, this is not an issue of humility. This is an issue of fact. Uh, Peter never refers to himself as the rock. He refers to Jesus Christ as the rock and foundation, and he establishes that fact from the Old Testament because he quotes the Old Testament when referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you come into an exegesis of this passage uh, and you look at the the confession of Peter, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the foundation upon which the entire church of Jesus Christ is based. Who is the foundation of the church? Ephesians 2.20 tells us that he is the cornerstone, and that the other apostles and prophets are stones, or foundations, in an indirect sense, a secondary sense, but the main foundation stone is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the confession of faith that Peter made in Christ as the Son of the living God, that confession, historically, in the patristic age, was considered to be the rock upon which the church would be built. So if you want to talk about exegesis, you can look at it from the standpoint of looking at the analogy of Scripture. How does Scripture really interpret the rock throughout the entirety of Scripture? But then you ask the question, how did the early church interpret this passage? And surprisingly enough, what you find, as you do a study historically of the exegesis of Matthew 16, is that the vast majority of church fathers do not interpret this in a Roman Catholic sense. In fact, uh, you, could, you could almost say that there is practically no church father who would interpret this in the way Vatican I has interpreted it. The greatest theologian of the entire church age is Augustine. He has more to say about Matthew 16 than any other church father. And I, I want to say before I get into this that I think that I have been able, I've spent six years researching this specific topic, and I have been able to document what I believe is to be one of the most extensive English documentations of the patristic interpretation of Matthew 16. And I have come to the conclusion that the unanimous consent of the fathers is utterly opposed to the teaching of Vatican I and its exegesis, its understanding of Matthew 16, that Peter is the rock, and in, that, in saying that, that there's a papal office that has been built upon Peter with successors in the bishops of Rome. Augustine says this in interpreting the, uh, the Matthew 16 passage. He says, You are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of the underworld will not conquer her. To you shall I give the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he, he goes into a commentary. He says, In Peter Rocky, we see our attention drawn to the rock. Now the Apostle Paul says about the former people, they drank from the spiritual rock that was following them, but the rock was Christ. So this disciple is called Rocky from the rock, like Christian from Christ. Why have I wanted to make this little introduction? In order to suggest to you that in Peter, the church is to be recognized. 
Christ, you see, built his church not on a man, but on Peter's confession. What is Peter's confession? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. There's the rock for you. There's the foundation. There's where the church has been built, which the gates of the underworld cannot conquer. And he goes on. I have documented page after page after page of quotes from Augustine saying precisely the same thing, that Christ did not build his church on a man, meaning Peter. He built it on Peter's confession of faith. He separates the person of Peter from Peter's confession. And he says that the rock and foundation of the church is Peter's confession, which points to Jesus as the rock. Because in other places, Augustine does does say that the rock is Jesus Christ. And he views Peter as a symbolic representative of the entire church. He says Peter is built on Christ, and Peter represents the church. Therefore, the church in its entirety is represented in Peter. The church is built upon Christ as the rock. And you can go through, uh, for example, in the writings of Chrysostom. Chrysostom also does exactly the same thing. He identifies the rock to be Peter's confession of faith, not the person of Peter. Ambrose does exactly the same thing. He says that the rock is not the person of Peter. The rock is Peter's confession of faith. Origen, Tertullian, Cyprian. Now, now, let me say this about Cyprian. You will find fathers like Cyprian who will say that the rock is Peter. But when you ask what is the interpretation that they give to that word, when they say that the rock is Peter, do they mean that in the same way the Roman Catholic Church means that in, in terms of how Vatican I has defined it? The answer is no. Cyprian is a forerunner to Augustine. They are both North African bishops. Augustine basically expresses the view of Cyprian. In Cyprian's view, Peter is symbolic of all bishops. There is not a papal office in his mind. All bishops are the successors of Peter. All bishops hold the chair of Peter, the authority of Peter, and are independent of one another. They are on equal footing with one another. That's why he could do what he did in his controversy with the Bishop of Rome. He was in conflict with him. He did not submit to him. He opposed him, and he died out of communion with the Bishop of Rome. And you can go on throughout the patristic age to the greatest theologians of the patristic age. Cyril of Alexandria does not interpret the rock to be the person of Peter, but the confession of faith of Peter. The same is, it can be said of all the great Eastern bishops like Basil the Great, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus, Athanasius, Firmilian, uh, Epiphanius. He himself also says that the rock upon which the church would be built is not the person of Peter, but his confession of faith. Hmm. And over and over again, this is what these fathers have said. The, it, what this proves to me is that from an exegetical standpoint, the Roman Catholic Church claims to be an infallible interpreter of Scripture. When you look at the interpretation of the fathers of Matthew 16, the most important passage of Scripture for the authority of the Roman Catholic Church, what you find is a Protestant Orthodox interpretation, not a Roman Catholic interpretation, and therefore it proves that the Roman Catholic Church today is certainly not an infallible interpreter of Scripture, because it contradicts the interpretation that was a consensus of interpretation of the early Church. greatest theologian of the entire Church age is Augustine. He has more to say about Matthew 16 than any other church father. And I, 
I want to say before I get into this that I think that I have been able, I've spent six years researching this specific topic, and I have been able to document what I believe is to be one of the most extensive English documentations of the patristic interpretation of Matthew 16. And I have come to the conclusion that the unanimous consent of the fathers is utterly opposed to the teaching of Vatican I and its exegesis, its understanding of Matthew 16, that Peter is the rock, and in, that, in saying that, that there's a papal office that has been built upon Peter with successors in the bishops of Rome. You originally yourself uh, were in the Roman Catholic Church and uh, uh, in time came to leave that church. And if you could briefly tell us about uh, your experiences in that church and what eventually led to uh, your exodus, and then we'll go ahead and get on to the uh, discussion of, uh, in, in your book, of the Roman Catholic view of papal primacy. Well, I was, as you mentioned, raised Roman Catholic. Uh, my, uh, my mother in particular, my father was uh, really not Roman Catholic, but my mother was, is, was and is a very devout Roman Catholic. Uh, all through grade school, I attended parochial schools. I was sent away from home uh, at the beginning of my high school years when I was 13. Uh, to attend a Benedictine monastery that also had a high school attached to it, uh, considerably a considerable distance from my home in the Northeast, and I attended that school for three and a half years. Uh, my early experience in Roman Catholicism was a uh, not a necessarily unpleasant experience. Uh, my later years uh, in Roman Catholicism were uh, not a good experience at all. I began to question. Uh, to have very deep questions about the relevancy of Christianity, about the validity of the scriptures. Uh, I ended up basically becoming an agnostic. Uh, I saw nothing in Catholicism that would draw me to, uh, to Christ. Uh, I was obviously not a Christian at any point uh, during my experience as a Roman Catholic. Uh, I had been devout at one time. I was an altar boy when there was still a Latin Mass. Uh, I used to faithfully attend Mass, uh, but it was empty. It was religion. There was no life there. And as a result, uh, when I became older and began to really question the validity of it, I, I jettisoned it. I jettisoned it on the basis of intellectual arguments, which really don't hold any water, but they, they, they seemed to me at the time to hold water. And I went into the world and began to embrace every form of philosophical answer I could find, and that I found to be empty as well. And, uh, there came a point in my life when I came face-to-face -face with the occult and the reality of the occult, which made me realize that there is more to existence than that which is material, which drove me back to the scriptures and to a search for God, if you will. And I came face to face with the reality of Jesus Christ as a living person. And through the teaching ministry of Walter Martin, who founded the Creation Research Institute, not the, uh, yeah, the Creation, I believe, no, it is, it's the uh, Institute. Christian Research. Christian Research Institute. Thank you. Uh, through, a, he greatly influenced me through some tapes that a friend of mine had given me. And as a result of getting back into the Word of God, understanding the Gospel, I came into an experience of salvation through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ when I was 24 years old. So I uh, became a believer, not because of any church, 
but because of the Word of God and because of the work of the Spirit of God in my own heart, that uh, becoming a, a Christian is a matter of response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is authoritatively proclaimed and taught in the Word of God. And as a result of that truth, uh, the Lord saved me in a very direct sense. Uh, my life radically changed. Uh, there was life that I had never experienced before because I had come to know the living God uh, by His grace. And as I began to grow and as I began to study the Scriptures, I obviously had a very a sincere desire to understand my roots and to understand uh, Roman Catholicism in light of what I had learned relative to the Scriptures. It led me into a study of the Gospel in more depth and into the official teachings of the Roman Catholic Church in trying to understand if this Church was in fact true or was it in fact false. And my study, both uh, biblically and historically, has led me to the conviction that the Protestant Reformation was necessary, it was right, uh, it is true to Scripture, and that it is a, uh, an attempt, I believe, it was an attempt by the Spirit of God to bring the Church back to its roots, which is the premier authority of the Word of God and what that authority teaches us with respect to ultimate salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, uh, last week we were talking about uh, your chapter in the book, uh, uh, chapter 4, which deals with uh, Matthew 16, and uh, of course the passage that where Christ uh, or where Peter confesses uh, Jesus to be the Christ, and then Christ tells Peter that uh, um, he is uh, he is calling him uh, or he is named Simon, and he's calling him Peter the Rock, and that he is giving to him the uh, the, the the keys of the kingdom, and that whatever uh, he binds on earth uh, will be bound in heaven, whatever he looses on earth will be loosed in heaven. And, of course, again, we spent a lot of time talking about the, the exegesis of this chapter. Uh, I, I guess, without going over the whole discussion again, suffice it to say that uh, half of the Catholic Church, even today, uh, I guess you could say, probably not numerically, but uh, at least geographically, doesn't agree with Rome's interpretation of this particular passage either. The Eastern Orthodox Church is always excluded in these discussions, but I quite often ask people that I know that are Catholic that uh, give so much credence to Rome being the apostolic church and wanting to get back to the church that was started by the apostles. I ask them, well, why didn't you go into the Eastern Orthodox Church? And none of them were able to give me an answer. It's just basically they heard about the Catholic Church. They were uh, they spent time talking to these people in the Catholic Church that told them that we are the Apostolic Church, and they never bothered to check, I guess, uh, history, even enough to, to discover that there's two churches claiming to be the original Apostolic Church. Right. And so certainly uh, one of the major disagreements between the East and the West is this interpretation of Matthew 16, the idea that, um, that uh, the Roman bishop, is being given uh, uh, being given this this the status that Rome uh, claims that the Roman bishop bishop has, and there's no reason for uh, uh, for just simply tossing aside the claims of the Eastern Orthodox Church at this point without actually looking further into um, whether or not these claims are true. So, uh, my point with all that is that certainly even today among people that claim to be Catholic in the sense that they claim to be the uh, unbroken uh, uh, line of succession or whatever from the, the time of the apostles, uh, even today, among those that make that claim, we do not have a consensus on the interpretation of 
um, of Matthew chapter 16. So going beyond that, um, we need to look at historically, of course we, we talked about exegetically last time, and we need to start looking at historically whether this doctrine holds up as being true. Now, before we get into that, I would like for, you have a, a place in your book where you offer uh, a, in my view, a very credible theory as to how the doctrine of uh, papal primacy uh, evolved in the Roman Catholic Church, and perhaps if you could, in the process of explaining that theory, uh, give us a brief thumbnail sketch of what the doctrine of, of papal primacy is in the Roman Catholic Church, and then, of course, tell us how you feel like it, it, it evolved. Well, the doctrine of papal primacy within the Roman Catholic Church, according to Vatican I, and according to some of the Roman pontiffs who have preceded Vatican I, is that uh, Christ has established on this earth his vicar in the Bishop of Rome, and that this vicar is head of the Church visible, although Christ is the ultimate head of the Church, subordinate to him in this hierarchy is the Bishop of Rome, who is the spiritual head over the church universal, and not only is he the spiritual head, he is also head over all temporal authority on the earth. There are two fundamental authorities which he exercises. One is the, the spiritual authority, the other is a temporal authority, and that all authority on this earth is ultimately subject to the Bishop of Rome. And it's interesting that Vatican I states, now this, this would be with respect to the church in particular, that from the very beginning, in its practice, it was necessary for salvation that every bishop, every professing Christian would be subject to the Bishop of Rome in areas of morals and faith and discipline. So they, they are not only talking here about an understanding of Scripture, which forms the basis of, in their exegesis, of the, uh, the claim for this authority, but what they're doing is they're saying that in history we can validate this claim by the practice of the Church from the very beginning all the way up through the ages. And uh, that is quite a claim to make. Uh, it is, uh, we can say without a doubt that uh, uh, many of the popes have made the claim with respect to ultimate authority, but it's one thing to make the claim, it's another thing to validate it in the practice of the Church on a universal basis. So you, uh, you say in your book that you feel like that very, uh, a very significant event uh, occurred with the fall of Rome and that there was a tremendous political vacuum formed uh, by this taking place, as, as one would imagine. Now, how do you feel like this contributed to the, the rise of, uh, assuming, again, that, uh, of course, looking at the early church, we find... And again, this is a discussion that, that we can't go over uh, again from, from last week, but that the early church did not hold to the Roman Catholic view that there is a, uh, that Peter, uh, there's an apostolic uh, line or succession being established in Matthew 16 uh, specifically for the, the, the bishops uh, of Rome down through the ages. Now, the early church just, just did did not believe that. I mean, that cannot be substantiated from the writings. But if that is the case, then how is it that this particular event, the fall of Rome, uh, possibly contributed to the rise of the current view within Roman Catholicism that, in fact, that, that was what Christ was teaching? 
Well, you have, within the early church, two streams of exegesis basically taking place with respect to Matthew 16. You have a papal interpretation, which is very strongly set forth by one, for example, like Leo I in the, uh, in the middle of the 4th century. Uh, you know, very strong papal statements. But contrary to Leo, you have the vast majority of church fathers who teach an antithetical view to this papal view, which is that the, the keys were not given to Peter exclusively. They were given to all of the apostles, that all uh, legitimate bishops are successors of Peter, that this is not an exclusive right of the, or uh, experience of the bishops of Rome, that in Matthew 16, Christ is not establishing a papal office what he is doing is establishing the basis of the foundation of the church, which is, which is Peter's confession of faith, that he is the Son of God, and that it is on that foundation, on that rock, upon himself personally, that the church would ultimately be built. Uh, be that as it may, you do have, historically, uh, the claims from the bishops of Rome that Christ did, in fact, establish a papal office that is established in the bishops of Rome as successors of Peter, and they viewed themselves in a very real sense as the exclusive successors of Peter. Now, the early fathers did not hold that view. Uh, they viewed uh, all bishops to be successors of Peter, all legitimate bishops to hold to the chair of Peter. That was not something Rome held in and of themselves. Uh, however, what you have with the, the empire, uh, Constantine, uh, at, obviously, at one time, Rome was the center of the empire politically. The Church of Rome was located in the center of the empire, in the capital of the, where the imperial power was, where the Senate was. Uh, this is what the church councils basically stated was the reason for the honorary position that Rome held, the uh, pri primacy of honor that they held within the church, because Rome had been the, the uh, place where Peter and Paul had been martyred, Rome was the central place of authority politically within the empire, and Rome therefore had a position of primacy within the church, which was a primacy of honor. When the empire's capital moved, when Constantine moved it from Rome to Constantinople and established the Eastern Empire with a capital in Constantinople, the western portion of the church was left without a direct influence by the empire in terms of its capital. And the, the Bishop of Rome became somewhat independent of the strong influence of an emperor. Uh, when the uh, empire, the western portion of the empire, collapsed, politically, you were left with a vacuum. And just by the, the uh, fact that you have a spiritual leader who is the ruler, uh, who has jurisdiction over the entire western uh, portion of the empire. He rules over the western part of the church. He came to rule over the western part of the church. You have uh, this, this man who, in many cases, was a very strong leader. Leo was a very strong leader, and he stood up to uh, the rulers and the leaders who were coming in uh, to take over the empire. Uh, he filled a vacuum, and men looked to him as a leader, as a spiritual leader, and just by default, he became a political leader as well. 
uh, over time, when you have in the Eastern Empire the eventual dissolution of the Eastern Empire, you have elevated to a position of ultimate authority then the Bishop of Rome, who in the course of history had declared himself to be the ultimate ruler theologically over the entire world, and then received what he said on the basis of an interpretation of Scripture, and because also of certain forgeries, which had become prominent in the church in later centuries, which seemed to give credence historically to the claims of the Roman bishops of that day. Yeah, uh, uh, excuse me. I was going to, uh, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about the uh, pseudo Isidorian uh, decretals of the ninth century, because I found that uh, I found that particular portion of your book very fascinating. These, uh, the pseudo Isidorian decretals, are a a number of forged, spurious, papal decretals from the early centuries, supposedly decretals of, of popes of early centuries, uh, establishing, if you will, a precedent of papal rule in the church. They are a complete fabrication, but they were received within the church as being historically valid. They became the basis of canon law in the church through Gratian's decretum a number of centuries after the ninth century when they were first formulated. And they were used uh, consistently by, uh, by popes, by Roman bishops, to validate their authority. You will find that Thomas Aquinas, in his section on the papacy, when he defines dogmatically the authority of the papacy and the ecclesiology of the church, he quotes from these forged decretals to verify and to validate the claims of the papacy. And these, these forged decretals were used for centuries throughout the church as the fundamental basis upon which papal authority was, was raised, uh, basically going back to validate itself historically, uh, much like the Roman Catholic Church will do today, to claim a consensus, historical consensus, uh, throughout the uh, history of the church and the writings of the church fathers to give credence to its claims. And it was a forgery which had immense implications for the church. It was a uh, it it solidly grounded the medieval church in the in the ultimate authority of the papacy. And again, uh, I don't want to I don't want the the significance of what we were talking about earlier to be lost. Uh, if we're simply going to look at the Roman Catholic Church as a church that is uh, descendant from the church that was started by the apostles. Uh, we also have to view the Eastern Orthodox Church in the same sense. And uh, these two churches have the same claims that they are both uh, uh, church that have, churches that have descended from the apostles, they, they, uh, an unbroken line of succession from the apostles. And yet the Eastern Church uh, does not at all acknowledge the, uh, uh, the Roman Catholic claims that are made uh, about the papacy and about the, the primacy of the Pope. So it's not just simply uh, disgruntled Protestants that are making these claims. And in order for the Church to... Uh, to uh, part of the Church's epistemology is that these claims come from a consensus of the Church Fathers um, over, the, uh, over the centuries of the Church, since the, uh, ever since the first century. And yet even today, such a consensus does not exist. And that needs to be uh, taken into account. And all that we're left with is to look and to see whether this 
particular viewpoint is valid. In your book is a chapter, the chapter number five, entitled Papal Authority and Infallibility, the Test of History. Now, this is a very significant chapter, and uh, our listeners need to uh, definitely pay heed to, to what will be said next. Uh, in this chapter, uh, you uh, devote the bulk of it to, um, uh, to an analysis of the historical facts as they relate to Vatican I's claims for papal infallibility. And, uh, uh, of course, talked about uh, earlier what, what Vatican I says about papal infallibility. Uh, so let's simply look at some uh, case histories and find out historically how this doctrine holds up. And so if you want to go ahead and, and begin with um, your, um, uh, your discussion of that topic. Well, the, it's interesting when you look at the claim that Vatican I makes. Obviously, it's going to make a claim. It does make a claim, first of all, on the basis of what it considers Scripture to teach. The interesting thing about this claim, because they, they refer primarily to Luke 22:32, where Christ says to Peter, Peter, I pray for you that your faith may not fail. That's the primary passage of Scripture upon which the whole doctrine of papal infallibility rests. Uh, implicit in their teaching, however, about Matthew 16 in the rock, is also this view of papal infallibility, which is that the church, uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church since the church is founded upon the rock, which is Peter, which, which uh, is uh, continued throughout uh, history by being founded upon the bishops of Rome, then the uh, gates of hell cannot prevail against the bishops of Rome. Uh, therefore, the doctrine of papal infallibility is, is grounded solidly in their view upon Scripture. The problem with that view is that there is not one church father in the entire patristic age who ever interpreted those Scriptures to mean that. They never referred to the bishop of Rome as being infallible in any sense in interpreting those passages of Scripture. And Vatican I has stated that it is, uh, uh, it is unlawful, this is their word, it is unlawful to interpret Scripture contrary to the unanimous consent of the fathers. Now that is a decree that was given by Trent, so they are renewing a decree that was given by the Council of Trent. And what they are saying is that there is a general consensus of opinion with respect to the meaning of these verses of Scripture, we are in the tradition of that consensus, and it is unlawful to contradict that consensus. But what they have done is, is give a novel interpretation to those passages which are utterly contrary to any interpretation of those passages that you find in the early church. That is well documented by Brian Tierney, a Roman Catholic historian, in his book, The Origins of Papal Infallibility. If anyone cares to read that book, they will find it very enlightening. When you come also to the test of history with respect to practice, you find the same, uh, basically the same situation. You do not find historical validation of the claim of Vatican I as to papal infallibility. Now, we need to understand when, the, when Vatican I talks about papal infallibility, they are not saying that the Bishop of Rome uh, is perfect in his behavior. That is indefectibility. They are not teaching that he is going to be perfect in behavior. It is amazing to me that given the behavior, however, of some of the bishops of Rome, that they can pardon that, uh, thinking that it would be more difficult for the uh, Spirit of God, apparently, to 
uh, cause the Bishop of Rome to somehow be infallible in his teaching, but uh, incapable of preventing the Bishop of Rome from leading a holy life, because it's one thing to be perfect, it's another thing to be holy. There have been numerous popes who have been uh, anything but holy, not, not, uh, not even mentioning the word perfect. Uh, but be that as it may, when it comes to the issue of practice in the early church, we do not find that the early church viewed the bishops of Rome to be infallible in their pronouncements. Uh, the Vatican I defined the infallibility to be uh, defined by the term ex cathedra, which means when the bishop of Rome speaks as the official, as his, in his official capacity as Christ's vicar on earth, as universal head of the church, as the one who is given authority to teach, when he teaches from the chair, a truth which is to be given for the church universal, in his official capacity as pope, as the bishop of Rome, he will be prevented from erring. He will not err. That is the teaching of Vatican I. Uh, but you do not find this particular point of view in any way subscribed to by the early church. There are a number of examples, historically, of bishops of Rome who have failed this test who have, in fact, subscribed to heresy. I'll mention two in particular. One is Pope Liberius. Uh, Pope Liberius was embroiled in the Arian controversy in the middle of the uh, 4th century. Uh, he made a courageous stand uh, early in his uh, conflict with the emperor uh, in this whole issue of the Arian heresy. He was uh, exiled from Rome and sent off to the mines uh, he suffered because of his stand, but he succumbed. Uh, he was allowed to come back and to resume his position as the Bishop of Rome because he signed a semi-Arian formula, which basically allowed him back into the graces of the emperor, back into the graces of the Arian section of the Eastern and Western Church, and he was allowed to uh, take his position again as the Bishop of Rome. Now, we have historical validation of the fact that he did succumb from the writings of Athanasius, from Hilary, and from Jerome, who have indicated that he did, in fact, apostatize, and he succumbed under suffering. Now, it is true that he was suffering and that he did succumb. Uh, how well, the Spirit of God is able to keep a man in firm he would have been able to do that with Pope Liberius. There have been other martyrs in the church who have stood faithfully without succumbing uh, to heresy and have suffered terrible persecution and torture and have not succumbed. Uh, surely the Bishop of Rome, if the Spirit of God would indeed keep him from uh, embracing error, would have prevented this. That is not the case with Liberius. Another uh, historical incident which is famous in the history of the church, which few people are aware of, is an incident that took place in the 7th century and the, at the uh, Third Council of Constantinople, which is the Sixth Ecumenical Council. This was a Greek council in which the Greek fathers, uh, and also it was not only a Greek council, I believe this council was presided over by uh, the legates of the Bishop of Rome. But the, this council condemned Pope Honorius, who had uh, reigned just prior to this council in the, uh, I believe he had reigned in the 6th century. Uh, Honorius was condemned as a heretic by this council. Now, there are Roman Catholic 
apologists who want to downplay it for obvious reasons, this issue, with the Sixth Ecumenical Council, because if, if in fact Honorius is a heretic and has been condemned as such as the Bishop of Rome, then the whole doctrine of papal infallibility is in ruins. Uh, obviously, for historical reasons, it's in ruins, but also theologically, it's in ruins. It simply is not true. It's obvious that if the Sixth Ecumenical Council, which is considered infallible from a Roman Catholic standpoint, can condemn a Pope of Rome as a heretic, then there, is, there are serious problems there theologically, because it's very clear that the Eastern Church did not believe that the bishops of Rome were infallible. The thing that you never read in any of the histories, or at least I have never read, from a Roman Catholic perspective, when they begin to deal with this issue with Honorius, is the actual text of the Sixth Ecumenical Council and what they said when they condemned Honorius, because we are told from a Roman Catholic perspective that, well, you know, Honorius was confused. Honorius probably taught uh, doctrine that was not really true, because the, the era of his day at that time was the era of monothelitism, which teaches that Christ only had one will, which is a denial of the two natures of Christ. Christ is one person, two natures. And this and monothelitism basically is a denial of that truth. Honorius embraced the doctrine of monothelitism along with the uh, Patriarch of Constantinople and some other bishops. Now, the Sixth Ecumenical Council, in its decree, I want to read exactly what they say, because we are told, first of all, by Roman Catholics that, well, he was not teaching in his official capacity as the Bishop of Rome, he was teaching as a private theologian. Uh, we are told that uh, he actually did not teach anything at all. Uh, he was just expressing a point of view, and it, it was a private opinion. The question I have, and that I have researched and have wanted an answer to, is, is that what the Sixth Ecumenical Council uh, view? Is that how they viewed this situation? Is that their perspective? I want to read their words. And these, these can be found from the uh, series that's put out on the Church Fathers by Erdmans, and it has been edited by Philip Schaff. This is what the Council says. After we had reconsidered, according to our promise which we had made to Our Highness, the doctrinal letters of Sergius, at one time patriarch of this royal God-protected city to Cyrus, who was then Bishop of, of Phasius, and to Honorius, sometime Pope of Old Rome, as well as the letter of the latter to the same Sergius, we find that these documents are quite foreign to the apostolic dogmas, to the declarations of the holy councils, and to all the accepted fathers, and that they follow the false teachings of the heretics. Therefore, we entirely reject them and execrate them and as hurtful to the soul. But the names of those men whose doctrines we execrate must also be thrust forth from the holy church of God, namely that of Sergius, sometime bishop of this God-preserved royal city, also that of Cyrus of Alexandria, and Pyrrhus, Paul, and Peter, who died bishops of this God-preserved city, and were like-minded with them, and that of Theodore, sometime bishop of Pharaoh, all of whom we define are subjected to anathema. And with these we define that there shall be expelled from the Holy Church of God and anathematized Honorius, who was sometime Pope of Old Rome, because of what we found written by him to Sergius, that in all respects, he followed his views and confirmed his impious doctrines. 
And then they say this in a decree, to Theodore of Pharaoh the heretic, anathema, to Sergius the heretic, anathema, to Cyrus the heretic, anathema, to Honorius the heretic, anathema, to all heretics, anathema, to all who side with the heretics, anathema. And they go on to say this, the Holy and Ecumenical Synod further says, this pious and orthodox creed of the divine grace would be sufficient for the full knowledge and confirmation of the orthodox faith. But if the author of evil, who in the beginning availed himself of the aid of his serpent, and by it brought the poison of death upon the human race, has not desisted, but in like manner now, having found suitable instruments for working out his will, we mean Theodorus, who was bishop of Pharaoh, Sergius, Pyrrhus, Paul, and Peter, who were archbishops of this royal city, and moreover, Honorius, who was Pope of the Elder Rome, Cyrus, Bishop of Alexandria, Macarius, who was lately Bishop of Antioch, and Stephen, his disciple, has actively employed them in raising up for the whole church the stumbling blocks of one will and one operation in the two natures of Christ, our true God, one of the Holy Trinity, thus disseminating in novel terms amongst the Orthodox people a heresy similar to the mad and wicked doctrine of the impious Apollinaris, Severus, and endeavoring craftily to destroy the perfection of the incarnation of the same our Lord Jesus Christ our God by blasphemously representing his flesh endowed with a rational soul as devoid of will or operation. Now it's interesting that Leo II, Pope Leo II, confirmed the decrees of this council, and he made this statement with respect to Honorius. He said of Honorius, he was one who did not illuminate the apostolic see by teaching the apostolic tradition, but by an act of treachery strove to subvert its immaculate faith. Now, the, it's very clear from the, from the actual wording of the council itself that Honorius is condemned not as a private theologian, but in his official capacity as the Bishop of Rome. He is condemned for teaching a doctrine which they say was that Satan had used him to raise up a, a heretical doctrine to be disseminated throughout the entirety of the church. So they condemned him then as the, in his official capacity as the Bishop of Rome for embracing and for disseminating a doctrine which they said was novel and heretical and which they said was satanic in origin. Now, those basic criteria that they give in their condemnation meet the criteria for what is defined by Vatican I as an ex cathedra statement, even though that term did not exist at the time of the Sixth Ecumenical Council. That term was non-existent. There was no such thing as ex cathedra. That is uh, basically a condition that is imposed by Vatican I. Nonetheless, in these definitions, the uh, the condemnation does meet with those basic criteria of what it means to pronounce something ex cathedra. You have an interesting quote in here from a Roman Catholic historian, Johann von Derlinger. Uh, he says, this one fact, that speaking of this particular incident uh, that you have mentioned, this one fact that a great council universally received afterwards without hesitation throughout the church and presided over by papal legates pronounced the dogmatic decision of a pope heretical, and anathematized him by name as a heretic is a proof, clear as the sun at noonday, that the notion of any uh, peculiar uh, enlightenment or inerrancy of the popes was then utterly unknown to the whole church. 
uh, Dollinger, just for uh, as a matter of interest, Dollinger was a Roman Catholic historian. He was the most renowned Roman Catholic historian in his day. He was he lived in the 19th century. He wrote this uh, as part of a book. This quote that you just gave is part of a book called The Pope and the Council in 1869, just prior to the passing of the decree by Vatican I on papal infallibility. He taught church history as a Roman Catholic for 47 years. And, and he was literally the most renowned historian, one of the most at least renowned historians, Roman Catholic historians of his day. Uh, he, he was immensely respected for his knowledge. Uh, he, he had written that book in an attempt to dissuade the council from committing what he considered to be intellectual suicide and theological suicide in, in, in light of the facts of history. And he was impelled to write that book and make that statement. And this by no means is an isolated incident. You, um, in your book, in this particular chapter, you list a number of, of, of similar incidences of popes down through the ages. One of them is kind of um, interesting. You mentioned earlier um, uh, Pope Liberius. Uh, of course, obviously, in the history of the church, probably the two, uh, the the two biggest heresies, possibly, uh, were the Arian controversy that um, you mentioned. Uh, Pope Liberius ended up siding with the Arians uh, for a time. Uh, also, the Pelagian controversy uh, with uh, Pelagius uh, and his uh, disciple uh, Celestius. Uh, going up against uh, Augustine on the uh, on the doctrine of original sin and uh, uh, the grace of God and salvation, and here again in this second major heresy in the church, we have a pope, uh, Pope Zosimus, who ends up siding with the Pelagians. That that is correct. Uh, what you find historically, it's uh, Innocent the First was uh, Zosimus's predecessor, and the North African Church with Augustine had condemned Pelagius and Celestius. Uh, Innocent I had sided with their declaration of condemnation, and they had basically, uh, they had hoped that the uh, Pelagian heresy uh, would come to an end because the church had, at least the Western church, had authoritatively defined the issue of the Pelagian teaching to be heresy. Uh, it was a uh, definitive definition that Innocent had given, uh, Pelagius was uh, unorthodox in his teaching. He was a heretic in his teaching, and this was clearly defined as well by the North African Church. Well, when Innocent died, Zosimus, Pope Zosimus, uh, reigned as the Bishop of Rome. Uh, Celestius made an appeal, uh, that is, uh, Pelagius' disciple made an appeal to Zosimus to, uh, to review his case. And in so doing, he came uh, into... Uh, to Rome, and he made an appeal uh, to Pope Zosimus. He was more or less interviewed by the Bishop of Rome and a number of the clergy there in Rome. Uh, he was hoodwinked, if you will, by Celestius. Uh, Zosimus uh, became incensed. He declared Celestius and Pelagius both uh, to be orthodox. He wrote to the North Africans an encyclical letter. Uh, declaring uh, his opinion that they, were, they had been falsely accused, falsely judged, and that they were to be received as orthodox. And in other words, he reversed the decision of his predecessor, Innocent. Uh, 
Well, this caused quite a stir, obviously. The North Africans uh, refused to submit to the Bishop of Rome. Uh, they sent their representatives back to Zosimus. They wrote letters to him saying that uh, he had been deceived. Uh, they implored him to uh, stand firm with the decision that had been made by Innocent I and not to reverse his decision. Uh, he wrote them again saying that he had uh, fully uh, reviewed the case, that in his opinion uh, the uh, judgment should stand and not be rescinded. Uh, the North Africans called a council. Uh, they renewed their condemnation of Pelagius in light of the uh, decree of the Bishop of Rome, Zosimus. Uh, they did not submit to him. Uh, they stood their ground. Uh, demonstrating, obviously, that the Bishop of Rome, in their mind, was not infallible. Uh, he decreed that they should submit to him. They refused to do so. It got to the point where the emperor himself got embroiled, and got involved, rather, and he uh, decreed that uh, Pelagius and Celestius were indeed heretics. Uh, it's at that point that some uh, historians feel that Zosimus saw the light, uh, felt the heat, if you will, and decided that it would be uh, in his best interest if he uh, submitted to the, to the uh, judgment of the North African bishops, uh, most significantly Augustine himself, which he did. And he reversed his decision, and he basically ended up uh, upholding the decree of Edison and condemning Pelagius and Celestius as, heret as heretics. Mm. Now this is, um, by the way, you're listening to, if you've uh, joined us, in the uh, past hour, you're listening to Christian Answers, and we're talking about the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, we're talking about the claims of the Roman Catholic Church, and, and so often in these discussions, um, many will say, uh, well, but the Roman Catholic Church is the apostolic church. It's the original church. I mean, why would we want to, to if we're going to be Christians, be a member of anything else but the original church? And this is my view. And certainly others are welcome to agree or disagree, but my view is that uh, I have no problem with saying that the Roman Catholic Church is what's left of the original church started by the apostles. But that, that, does, not, um, uh, that does not alter the fact that a church can apostatize. We see that in uh, the first three chapters of uh, the book of Revelation, and we see that um, uh, in, uh, well, uh, among other things, the, the book of Galatians, where we have... Uh, churches that are constantly being rebuked for adopting false doctrine. Now, with all haste, getting back into uh, your book, we want to start with Chapter 6, which deals with Marian dogmas. Now, again, this is an area which I think has is, is really, uh, really been almost beat to death uh, in uh, uh, polemics in the past of, uh, of Protestantism versus Roman Catholicism, but it is a significant area because uh, it is an essential in the Roman Catholic faith. It does have to do with salvation, at least certain aspects of it. So uh, let's talk about, uh, first of all, what we want to demonstrate. The question that we want to answer is, uh, is the Roman Catholic view of Mary, first of all, let's, let's, the question we want to ask is, what is the Roman Catholic view of Mary? And then is that uh, a view that is held universally by the Church as Rome claims? Well, the, uh, the basic doctrines that relate to Mary, the mother of Jesus, is that she was uh, 
born immaculately conceived. Now, in the Immaculate Conception, many believe that that doctrine has to do with Jesus Christ being born free of sin. Even Roman Catholics are confused on this issue. But the doctrine has to do with the person of Mary herself. The teaching is that Mary herself was born free of original sin. Uh, it is further taught that uh, she was uh, a virgin throughout the entirety of her life. Uh, that is the doctrine of perpetual virginity. Uh, it is further taught that uh, she was uh, raised at her death. Uh, this is not clearly defined uh, by the papal decree on the assumption, but that she was assumed uh, after death and raised bodily into heaven and has uh, been established as the queen of heaven and earth. Subsidiary to this teaching on the assumption of Mary is the teaching that uh, she is also a mediatrix with Jesus Christ in salvation, that she is herself a mediator of grace. Now, this has not been officially defined, but it is popular teaching. And it is very much in line with the way the teaching of her assumption uh, was you know, evolved over time and uh, accepted within the church and then eventually defined as dogma. Even though it has not been defined as dogma yet, uh, there are papal teachings which uh, affirm this teaching, and it is very quickly moving to the point where it most likely will become defined uh, as defeat a teaching by the church at some point probably in the not-too-distant future. Uh, but these are the basic teachings that Mary has been raised to a position of authority, of supreme authority, as the queen of heaven and earth, that she is immaculate in her being, that she was a perpetual virgin, and that she is, in fact, a co-redemptrix and co-mediatrix with Jesus Christ in the scheme of salvation. Now, first of all, what does Scripture say about, um, uh, about these doctrines? Uh, do we find any basis for these claims in the Word of God? Well, we certainly do find that uh, Mary is the mother of God, that she was a virgin in giving uh, birth to Christ. That was predicted by Isaiah in Isaiah 7. Uh, she is obviously a, a great model to us of, of humility and godliness. There is absolutely no doubt about that at all. Uh, but when you, when you ask the question, uh, does the, do the Scriptures teach that Mary was immaculately conceived? Uh, that is an absolute contradiction to Scripture, which teaches us that every human being on the face of the earth are sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All who are conceived in the seed of Adam uh, receive a sin nature, are tainted by original sin, and there is no exception. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Mary herself, in the Annunciation, in her prayer, expresses the fact that she had need of a Savior, and she was a sinner. Only a sinner would need a Savior. Uh, you will find, uh, likewise, that in the, uh, the teaching of the, uh, the Assumption, uh, there is no word, not one, not one syllable in Scripture that teaches the Assumption of the Virgin Mary. Uh, you don't find uh, in the history of the writings of the Church Fathers an affirmation of the teaching of the Immaculate Conception of Mary, what you find, in fact, is a, uh, a repudiation of that doctrine. That doctrine historically started, had its uh, inception, with Pelagius and Celestius. 
that doctrine did not begin with the official uh, dogma of the church. It was repudiated in the early church. If you read the Commonatory of Vincent Alarens, written in the mid-fourth century, you will find that he makes the statement that prior to Pelagius and Celestius, no one ever denied that every human being, none accepted, every human being had, had the contagion of original sin. It was Pelagius who uh, conceived of the idea that they were men who were born free from original sin. He did not teach original sin and who lived a sinless life on this earth, and he included Mary in, uh, in that list of people that he would consider to have been born free of original sin. This doctrine was repudiated by Augustine. Uh, he garrisoned none other than the theologian Ambrose to support his position because Ambrose had been used by Pelagius in support of his view that men are born free of original sin, and, and Augustine basically came back with the true writings of, of Ambrose to show that this was not the true uh, point of view of Ambrose, that he considered none to be free from the contagion of original sin, that all men born of woman, all women, all men, are in fact uh, under the curse of Adam in terms of original sin. That, that is a doctrine that throughout the ages, throughout the early church, was repudiated by the early church. Uh, in fact, uh, the Roman Catholic Mariologist Juniper Carroll makes this statement. He says, from the extant philological data, it does not seem that the personal sinlessness of Mary or her immaculate conception were explicitly taught as Catholic doctrine in the patristic West. It was denied by Leo I, Pope Leo I, by Gregory the Great, by Bernard of Clairvaux, and by uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, you find a similar situation when you come to the doctrine of the Assumption. There is nothing in the Word of God about the Assumption. There is not one single word in the patristic writings about the Assumption of Mary. In fact, the first father to talk about the Assumption and the possibility of the Assumption was Epiphanius in 377 A.D., and he said that no one knew what had happened to Mary. Now, that was the consensus, patristic consensus in the day in which he lived. No one had any idea of what had happened to her. There was no Assumption. Lubicott points out that the, the and Lubicott is a uh, world-renowned Roman Catholic, Orthodox Roman Catholic conservative uh, theologian. He makes the statement that the origin of the teaching of the Assumption was with a work from the transitist literature. Uh, it is a piece of literature in which they formulated this doctrine of the Assumption of Mary. The interesting thing about this historically is that when this doctrine first appeared in the 5th century, it was condemned by Pope Galatius and by Pope Hormistus in the 5th and 6th centuries as being heretical. In, in papal decrees, they explicitly pronounce heretical the teaching promulgated by the transitus literature on the Assumption of Mary. That's where it originated, and when it originated, it was condemned, forcefully condemned, by these two popes. It, w it only came in through the church uh, by, a, by Gregory of Tours in 598 to explicitly begin to hit it on the basis of the transitist literature, mistakenly think was the work of an early church Through the Gregory, it began to find its way into the teaching of the church, and very slowly it became a, a popular belief in the church and was only defined as dogma in 1950.
Hmm. You're listening to Christian Answers. I'm Lee Meckling. We're uh, speaking with William Webster uh, about his book, The Church of Rome at the Bar of History, published by Banner of Truth, and we're talking about uh, the Roman Catholic uh, doctrine of Mary. And uh, we've talked about the various um, views that the, the Roman Church puts forth, uh, the uh, Immaculate Conception uh, and the, um, uh, the uh, other other views that they have. Also, uh, before we get too far off of this, uh, I understand from your book that with, despite the fact that the view of the Immaculate Conception seems to have originated uh, in the East, this is one of the areas where the Eastern Orthodox Church uh, does not go along with Rome. Is that correct, or is that a, am I mistaken? It is my understanding that the, uh, the Eastern Church, uh, that is one of the areas of contention between itself, in addition to the papacy, and a couple of other doctrines that they do, uh, purgatory, for example, they do not agree with the Roman Catholic Church on that particular uh, aspect of their teaching. They, they do have a very high view of Mary, one that I believe is, is uh, a great embellishment over what the Scriptures teach, but nonetheless, uh, they, they do reject and repudiate this teaching of the Immaculate Conception. Now, another uh, view that the Roman Church puts forth of Mary is the perpetual virginity of Mary, that she did not, um, uh, she did not have a, for want of a better way of putting it, a normal marital relationship even after um, the birth of, of Christ. And you point out several things in Scripture that would uh, definitely seem to indicate that that is not the case. If you look at the, what the Scriptures teach, uh, the scriptures do not teach that Mary, uh, in her relationship with her husband, continued to be a virgin after the birth of Christ. In fact, the scriptures say that she remained a virgin until, the word until in Greek, uh, she had given birth to the Lord Jesus Christ, at which time she entered into a normal marital relationship with her husband. Uh, culturally, it would go against everything in the fiber of that woman, as a Jewish woman, uh, to embrace an ascetic uh, ideal such as perpetual virginity in marriage. That's unheard of in the culture of Judaism. One of the, the, the greatest blessings of being a wife would be that you could be a mother. That was the, uh, one of the penultimate experiences in your social experience, in the life and culture of Judaism of that day, and that would run counter to everything that she would have been taught as a, uh, as a young woman growing up in the culture of Judaism. But in addition to that, what we're told in Scripture is that uh, Jesus had brothers and sisters. Now, the common argument that we will hear from Roman, uh, Roman Catholic apologists is that the, the word really means cousins. When, when we have reference to the uh, relations of Jesus, that it, that it really doesn't say that he has blood brothers and sisters. But the scriptures are very explicit when they use words to describe family relationships. When the scriptures want to use a term, the term which describes a blood relationship within a family as a brother and sister, it uses the Greek term adelphos. When it wants to use a word that defines a near relative, but not one in your immediate family, such as a niece or a nephew or a cousin, it uses the Greek term syngenes. 
And in every situation where we are told about the brothers and sisters of Jesus, the, the scriptural term that's used is the term Adelphos. The word Singanese, for example, is used where we're told that uh, when, after the Annunciation, when Mary uh, is told that she will uh, bear the Christ child and become the mother of Jesus, that she goes to visit her cousin, Elizabeth. Well, the word cousin there is the Greek term Singanese, and it is not the word Adelphos. Uh, Adelphos means someone who is your brother or sister. It's used, for example, spiritually to, to relate to all those who are truly in the church, who are brothers and sisters in the church. It talks about a relationship there, who all of us who are children, but in a family relationship, brothers and sisters mean brothers and sisters. Mary had other children. Jesus was their half-brother, and that's very clear from what the Scriptures teach us. Uh, let's be accused of, of not uh, distributing the blame equally. Um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, both Calvin and Luther uh, uh, also held to the perpetual virginity of Mary. You know, I have read that. Uh, I think it may be true, but I don't know in an absolute sense if it's true. I would need to do more research in that area uh, to really ascertain if that is true or not. I have heard that said but I have not seen any real solid documentation to point to that fact. Uh, it could be true. I don't know if it is or not. Something else I want to mention, and this is um, getting uh, spending too much time on a theological soapbox. I've quite often heard many contemporary theologians bristle uh, when uh, the, the Theotokos, so the Mary as being the mother of God, is brought up, and they continually think that that is a, a, a Catholic or a doctrine introduced by the Catholic Church to exalt Mary, and yet it actually came out uh, during the time of the Council of Nicaea, uh, Nestorian theology. And quite often, when I hear modern Protestant scholars um, uh, talk down this doctrine of Mary, and Mother, they actually begin to sound very Nestorian in their thinking. Uh, so I, I think. My view is that this is a doctrine that, that shouldn't be tossed out simply because it's been used by, uh, or it has evolved into some, into some wrong thinking in the Roman Catholic Church. But I, I wanted to give you the opportunity to respond with your view on that. Well, I think the theotokos, if we define it correctly, there should not be a problem in using the term if we understand what it really means and what the Council of Ephesus was really trying to preserve in declaring Mary's theotokos. Uh, Nestorius objected to the term he thought that uh, rather than being called the mother of God, that Mary should be called the mother of Christ.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.